0: You are listening to Mark Hatmaker rough-and-tumble raconteur. This is a grab bag of old-school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Crew, this is Mark Hatmaker coming to you from the Comancheria. Uh, I might be a little jazzed and jumped up today, just coming off a weekend of adventure on the river. So you know how that kind of gets down in your marrow bones and makes you feel just fine. Uh, the uh, title of today's uh, fun is The Day Jiu-Jitsu Died in Paris, right? A little bit of a provocative uh, title there, but stay with me. It's, uh, there's a lesson more than just matching style against style or whatever. And Make sure my my thoughtful uh, tacticians and uh, strategic warriors uh, you should find a lot of food for thought here, and the, the, particularly the, all three sections we'll be running through So let's look to a single uh, historical instance that illuminates a lesson in task saturation, or what Musashi called sword flowers. Now, here, jiu-jitsu just happens to be the vehicle of the combat strategy lesson, the art is not being picked on, not at all, because we all know it is formidable, and if you doubt it is, is formidable, you've not played against uh, skilled or even semi-skilled jiu-jitsu tacticians. So let's be clear on that. This is not a knock on jiu-jitsu. It is a knock on a, sometimes how even experienced people uh, can fall to a little bit of a cognitive trap here. The focus here is less the art itself than it is the mind of the combat athlete that fixes beyond good sense or good health. Now we're going to begin in France and then spend some time in a black hawk chopper cockpit and how we got to uh, uh, train these awesome Ferris fighters and then allow a samurai to throw some shade and then wind up hopefully with our pupils dilated for wiser tactics and strategy choices. So let's go to early 20th century France and also be prepared. I do not speak French. I only have uh, my uh, my poor grasp of English, and perhaps my even poor grasp of uh, Comanche, uh, to uh, to weather the the language storms, but here we'll be dealing with some French, and uh, so be prepared for hilarity and suit. So, uh, early 20th century France, we've got Edmond Desbonnet was a physical culture purveyor and entrepreneur. As a matter of fact, if you are t- re- would rather read this, and I'll put the link on it, you can go over and look at the blog, and I've uh, thrown up a photo of Mr. Desbonnet, and you can't doubt this guy was uh, clearly jacked, all pre-steroids, gorgeous stuff. I mean, it's all true hard work, uh, no help along the way. Anyway, back to Mr. Dave Boulnet, like all good businessmen, he kept an eye on how to increase his clientele, right? So, during a trip to London in 1905, he encounters a physical exhibition that was currently all the rage in London. That was the, uh, quote, exotic art of Japanese jujitsu unquote, which actually was uh, uh, a judo as it looked at that time. So uh, we can kind of say jiu-jitsu, judo are going to be kind of uh, synonyms for one another throughout the rest of this uh, little sermon here. At the time, uh, Taro Miyaki was wowing the public and physical culturists alike with his adept use of leverage to toss larger and stronger ones willy-nilly, all right? So D'Abonnet sees an opportunity. So he hires Miyaki and Miyaki's equally able colleague, Kenyana, uh, Kananya, to come to France for a few months to teach his core cadre this new sensation. Now, the French public is likewise enthusiastic for this new form of martial art. Now Dable then contracts. I mean, con, uh, contracts Ernest Regnier, a combination man. Well, that is a boxer who is also a wrestler to go to London and learn that all he can from Miyake and Kananye. Uh, uh Kananya sorry, I'm going to pr- mispronounce the French and the Japanese here. And then uh, de, uh, Regnier is then to bring this all back home and teach the art in uh, de Bonnet's establishment. Well, Regnier is was not only an able boxer wrestler already. He's also a powerful man similar to a uh, Dable He's a little bit Small side but still yet, uh, he took to this art like a duck to water. So here we got who's already strong. He's fit. Uh, he's uh, he's a boxer and he's a wrestler. Do you know these are formidable arts, and he's going to also overlay on top of that another another formidable art. So stay with this Reignier is nothing to sneeze at. right Rain- is immediately smitten by the art, and he thinks, and thanks to his conditioning base and his solid foundation in wrestling, he is soon deemed as able as his worthy instructors. Now, the uh, newly combat-evolved René then returns to France, and to show how much he has a commitment to the new way of thinking uh, to this new Japanese jujitsu, he decides, as they called it then, to Japanize his name. So he starts calling himself René. He pronounces it, so the spelling goes from R E G N I E R, he changes it to R E hyphen, capital N I E. So, in his mind, he's showing a good deal of respect and how much his allegiance has switched over to this new form. So, in the summer of 1905, Debonet opens a studio in the upscale Champs Elysees quarter of Paris and dubs it the Japanese School of Jiu Jitsu. Now, this thing is a rousing financial success. And Reni, uh Miyaki, and Kanaya become celebrities touring the continental capitals together giving demonstrations. Everybody just is loving it, and going ape and for it. So Rémy, again, our French-Japanese name, uh, sees the financial success and decides to go it on his own without Desbonnets. And he comes with the idea of a moneymaker of an exhibition to bring in more uh, eyes on it and make more people want to sign up. With the confidence and his newly mastered art, he schedules himself to fight all comers of the Folly Berger. So, the evening of thirtieth uh, November, thirtieth in uh, one of those all comers that were, uh, stepped up for the challenge happened to be a wrestler. His name was Whitzler, Witzler, W I T Z L E R, and he's described as quote savage and surly unquote. I didn't even give the French uh, how they because you know it'd be silly, but savage and surly wrestler named Witzler. So here we have the opponents. There, uh, Witzler possesses good condition, but only one art—that of wrestling. Whereas Rainey, he has good conditioning and boxing and wrestling and the ace in the hole of jujitsu. In short, he's no stranger to any type of scrum. All right, these are all real arts, real deal stuff. Got good conditioning. So how does this match of the triple threat celebrity uh, go against this single art challenger? Well, Witzler opens up with a headbutt to the nose and then pummel Rainey's face so thoroughly he's unable to continue because he can't see through the blood. Now, all fi- fads must end, right? But this event sped the death of uh, this one for Parisians. Business after this debacle dried up and Des Bonet closed his Champs uh, Lisi's Jiu-Jitsu school soon after declaring, quote, Jiu-Jitsu was dead, unquote. Now, let me emphasize here, no, jiu-jitsu clearly was not dead, all right? Merely this fashionable moment was, all right? And this match did not prove the superiority of wrestling over jujitsu jitsu because Sonia Witzler clearly wasn't even using what we'd call kosher wrestling. He, he, he stepped outside the boundaries of that. Uh, what the match did do, though, was to highlight and spotlight the hazards of task saturation which brings us to and you know, some people stay with me in this through line some people might see such things as uh, a filler and you know what, what are you changing the horses in the middle of the story for now these are all on the single combat thread here this brings it is uh, take a look at how we have to train our black hawk helicopter uh, pilots the human animal often reacts less than ideally in chaotic or unfamiliar circumstances, all right? Now, hence the importance and value of intense methodical training for military, law enforcement, combat athletes, etc. Training for chaos with chaos in mind is not a hundred percent bet that you'll perform up to snuff, but it's a nice bit of insurance, all right? Now, task saturation is, in short, being defined as being exceptionally focused on your training protocols to the exclusion of new data, all right? Now, that is, it is possible to have an operator, a pilot, performing everything scrupulously in perfect order, no matter what, but to their detriment. That is the definition of task saturation. Let's, we're going to get further into an example to really seat this idea. Task saturation is well studied by the military because the nature of military training requires high performance under so many chaotic circumstances that they will have a higher likelihood of manifesting. So we need operators and pilots and soldiers and sailors to respond well in some uh, God awful situations, and far more than just standard, uh, you know, combat athletes or uh, people who uh, never step outside of the CQB gym or or whatever. Now, where this can go awry is when one aspect of the hierarchy or a checklist is no longer available or ideal. An operator who is task-saturated will fixate on completing the task despite its loss of validity and in face of being a potential harm. I'll give you an example here to hopefully clear this up. There were some puzzling cases of helicopters being ditched in the sea and pilots being found drowned within the cockpit. The latches were not jammed. On the cockpit for uh, the escape and in some instances harnesses had sheared so the seat seat belt entrapment was not on the table yet the pilot was still trapped uh, so-called within uh, the cockpit it was determined from a bit of forensic uh, backtracking that some pilots were following the ditch checklist so assiduously they continued to struggle with the latch even if the step was no longer uh, required I mean, there's other examples beyond that, but the, uh, that is they're working with the strap. If the, sh- uh, the strap has been sheared, they're still working with the latch, and you didn't have to because the strap was sheared. So we, we, this is not to say, well, these are dumb guys now. Oh, hell no. Of course not. These are all heroes out there. We do not know whenever chaotic forces are hitting us how we're going to respond. What they did is they kicked over into the training and went to work. The thing is the training had not been scrambled up enough at that time. That's what the military does now. They want to scramble things up just we want to do in our own combat training, not become dogmatic and hang on to her stuff so much and think, yeah, I, I got boxing, I got wrestling, I know exactly what I'm doing, and this is going to apply across broad bases. Whenever, no, au contraire, this doesn't work. It doesn't work for uh, the, the Black Hawk uh, pilots, and it uh, will not work for us whenever we have new information coming in. So some pilots are trying to free a belt or harness latch, even in cases where the harness had separated. In other words, there was no need to release a latch. The pilots could have gone on to the next step and swam out. Again, we can't look at this and think, well, you know what I would do? No, I don't know what you would do. We None of us know what we would do. Until we're faced with chaotic, extreme circumstances. I mean, the case in point is uh, we had so many rapids to shoot on the river trip we just did here. And this is, I'm not comparing this to, you know, trying to escape, swim out of a, a black hot copter, but every single rapid has a new through line. You got to get up there, you got to survey, figure out which way you're going to shoot this and run the line. And hopefully you pick the right one and, you know, dog leg it just right. Nothing is, none of them are going to be repeated. It's, you can hit that same stretch of river, different flow of water is going to change how things hit. You've got to deal with what that flow is at the moment and not assume that you do one, you know them all. Of course you don't. Now, task saturation is a tough glitch to overcome as it is the opposite of bad form and training. Often bad form and training means you're gonna perform poorly because you, you train poorly and with bad form, and you he's not gonna look well in the fight. We know exactly what that is. Task, uh, task saturation, again, is the opposite. We have an operator an athlete so well-trained that the protocol will not be broken come hell or high water. Task saturation is seldom, this is the military speaking, task saturation is seldom experienced by good improvisers. Folks, we would call quick on their feet. Now keep in mind they just don't hire people to show up and say, "Uh, we're not going to train you anything because you're a good improviser. No, they want people who can improvise and are exceptionally well trained. Uh, So We've got to walk the fine line between being very, very well trained with an eye on protocol and having an awake eye. Always alert for when the protocol or aspects of it need to be tossed. The military training attempts to thwart task saturation by varying tasks and programming scenarios and training where the protocol must be scrambled. That is forcing improvisation upon the operator. So you learn your uh, your task top to bottom, A to Z, upside down, backwards. And after that, pieces get chopped out and scrambled and moved around all the time. So you need to know everything fluently. And then the chaos gets kicked at you. Don't start out with chaos training only. You go chaos first, like with our outer limits drills that we have. You don't do those first. You learn how to move, how to react and do. Then you use your overlay of the outer limits drills. If you don't know what I'm talking about there, have a look at our uh, com and our, our our street system, uh, it'll be Volume 3 outer, uh, outer Limits Drill. None of that is how to throw hands or, or resist uh, uh, something in self-defense. It's how to train it with different overlays on top of it to kill some task sap, uh, saturation, let you know what will manifest or what you might need to toss from your own toolbox. Now, Witzler, that are our savage and surly wrestler, he scrambled Rene's protocol. So, Rene was highly trained uh, in jiu-jitsu and boxing and wrestling and yet, whenever uh, he, he tried to respond with jiu-jitsu answers where they no longer apply so when jiu-jitsu answers apply they are absolutely manner they're wonderful the top notch when they do not they are anathema and again we, this isn't just jiu-jitsu when boxing answers don't apply no go when wrestling answers don't apply or right? when krav maga answers don't uh, apply all this we must not rest on assumptions uh, that scrambling our methods enough though sometimes the glitch is in the complexity of the approach itself now stay with me here I'm going to go on to uh, pick up a little bit of samurai wisdom here. Uh, Miyamoto's Musashi's uh, book of Five Rings is a foundational text in samurai lore. Musashi grouses or complains that he sees the danger. He he also sees the danger in blighted adherence to quote just because unquote tradition that no longer fits combative realities. All right. So he's kind of railing against some tradition that no longer it might have applied at one point in the past but no longer fits. And this is the chewy part of Musashi's observation. He also warns that much innovation now this. In scare quotes there, meaning yeah, he did, he's putative, specious. Uh, much of our innovation that comes after tradition, read that as foundational and effective, is equally rife with superfluities. It uh, means he places the blame on turning the war arts into commerce. The supplier needs to keep the buyer at the teat, so to speak, so the so-called master multiplies complexities and training to keep the milk flowing. You know what I'm talking about there? I mean, you could easily point to me and go, hey, Hatmaker, you release a new training uh, 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 program each and every uh, month Month, well it's another chapter of what we're going there and that's exactly the sort of thing in a sense that i'm talking about if i was increasing complexities what we're doing with black boxing is to uh black box project is to continually chop down and trim down you got to get to the things that are just going to be easier and easier and trim away the fat go with historical realities to get it viciously verified make sure that works if things get increasingly complex on it you know that's not the way to go man so let's go to masashi here let's go with a quote Uh, As I see society, people make the arts into commercial products. They even think of themselves as commodities and also make implements for their commercial value. The attitude is like flowers compared with seeds. The flowers are more numerous than the seeds. There is more decoration than reality. Unquote. So in other words, all martial tactics and strategies have an essence, often a thrusting point of simplicity, as the chaos of true battle will support nothing more than the Occam's razor of stripped-down choice. The flowers, the ornamentation may be beautiful. But uh, how many are useful as a headbutt to the nose when you're expecting a collar tie-up? So in a sense, Rene became task-saturated, learning all the ins and outs and tricks and tips of leverage. And uh, what you should have, a great, broad, wonderful foundational base in it, as Musashi uh, discusses. But at the same time, realize there's a way to get right down and run down the center. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, that Zumbrada may be lovely, <laughs> but there is the pig stick and to contend with whenever it comes to the knife as well. We've got to make sure how much might need to go. I think of the wonderful work the Dog Brothers did when we take a look at uh, a lot of stick work. Then you take a look at it. How does it stand up against this full bore? Go go at it. There's uh, foundational work and then there's work that kind of hacks the, fl- uh, the sword flowers to the ground. Now, again, I could have selected from many an art, you know, boxing, wrestling, Muay Thai, etc., where we see examples of something that is without a doubt effective, undoubtedly effective in most circumstances, and yet still provide the wrong answer simply because it was, uh, it's not the task-saturated answer, right? it's the post-foundational sword flower answer, right? And again, that's the foundation of what we do with our black box stuff. For nothing but seeds and rip-roaring to the point, old-school tactics, historically accurate, visually verified. And I would have tell you, have a look at our uh, uh, raw or black box project there. I mean, I'll, I'll provide the... Uh it's ExtremeSelfProtection.com. The link will be in the show notes. I'll also give you the link over here to the blog version of this. You can take a look at a, a photo of Mr. Debonnet there. Take a look at that uh, awesome physique he built without the, the use of uh, cheating aids. And then also uh, we've got an upcoming uh, uh, boot camp. If you actually want to get uh, hands on and do some stuff, we'll be doing some planes, knife work, old school rough and tumble work, uh, old World War I and Two combatants from uh, uh, Coach uh, uh, Jim Marks. we got John Miller coming on there doing some mighty twisty Sambo leg locks. Been, of course, I'll be handling the historical side of things. That boot camp is in August uh, uh, August 20th and 21st. And I'll put a link on there if you want to take a look at that. Other than that, just thanks for having ears on this thing. And enjoy yourself, crew.